Our second reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Given the fact that Luke wrote both the gospel account and of the ascension and the passage from Acts, both of which Kevin just read, it's interesting to note the differences and agreements between the two stories. The gospel account is rather thin on details, but the event seems to have taken place on Easter, after Jesus' appearance on the road to Emmaus, and after his appearance later in the evening to the gathered disciples in Jerusalem. From there, Jesus led them to Bethany, where he blessed them and ascended to heaven. In our passage from Acts, he gives a little more detail, though perhaps still not as much as we would like. According to Acts, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of 40 days as he taught them further about the kingdom of God. On the 40th day, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which is less than a mile from Bethany, where he was lifted up, a cloud taking him out of their sight. And this is why in our Christian calendar, the day of ascension is always the fifth Thursday, 40 days after Easter. So comparing the two accounts, there's a probable difference in timing and a very slight difference in location for the ascension. Most scholars have concluded that in the gospel, Luke is condensing or even conflating the events that he relates in Acts. Even so, there are very important congruencies between the two versions. Of course, in both versions, the physical body of Jesus is gone from the earth after his ascension. In both, the ascension occurs after Jesus promises that the disciples will receive a gift of power from God. And in both, just before Jesus physically departs, he commissions the disciples to be his witnesses. In so many of the works of art that depict the ascension, 
Only the feet of Jesus are shown, coming out of the bottom of a cloud. The artists are doing their best to show how Jesus might have been taken up or received by that cloud into heaven. Many of the artists were painting in an age before anyone knew that the earth is round and that up is really out. Personally, and I emphasize that this is only my view, I think of the ascension almost as if Jesus entered into another dimension. Maybe even he shimmered as he was making the dimensional transition, which might have seemed to the disciples as if they were seeing him through a cloud. Perhaps that other heavenly dimension coexists with our own, but is not visible to us. Such a view has the advantage of locating heaven, wherever heaven is, as being close to us, very close, almost like we could reach out and touch it, if only we had the key to that other dimension. Our loved ones who are in heaven with Jesus, then, would also be close to us. That great cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on in our life of faith. It also helps to make sense of the book of Revelation's image of heaven coming down to earth. Rather than coming down from outer space, in that great day of the Lord, heaven would simply be materializing among us. Well, of course, I'm getting far from the text, but I do think about it. However, Lant may think about it, Luke tells us that the disciples were looking up as Jesus disappeared. In a moment, the choir will sing a setting of Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. Many of us have been comforted by the words of this psalm. However, Jesus' disciples, as they were looking up, may not have felt so good. Our friend Jesus, who taught us the truths about God's kingdom and who gave his very life for us and who astonished us with his powerful resurrection, returning to us when we had lost all hope, now has disappeared again. What are we to do? Where has our hope gone? Who will lead us now? Where is our help? Of course, the psalm does not say that our help actually comes from the hills, nor even from the upward direction, but rather from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God was way ahead of the disciples. Just before he departed physically, Jesus had told them to expect their help from God in the form of spiritual power that would sustain them in faith. This power would come very soon when they received the Holy Spirit in 10 days to be exact on Pentecost, which is next Sunday. Jesus had told them something else. Luke clearly wants us to get this point because he puts it in both versions. Jesus said, you are witnesses of all the things that have happened through my teaching 
my death and my resurrection, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's as if the two men in white robes who appeared just as Jesus disappeared were reminding the disciples of the mission Jesus had given them. It was time to redirect their gaze from up in the sky back down to the ground, to earth, to their reality. Maybe the disciples didn't think of it until later, but as long as Jesus was with them physically on earth, they would never have become the powerful witnesses that Jesus intended. They would always have been leaning on him, waiting on him to take the lead. But with the gift of the Holy Spirit and with Jesus' physical absence, they had the power and the space to become their own towers of faith, which they did. Moreover, now that Christ was present in heaven, having taken his throne at the right hand of God, he could be present through the Spirit to all of the disciples, indeed to all persons, simultaneously, something the limitations of an earthly, physical body would not allow. Now that Jesus has ascended, the action shifts to the church and to its members, the body of Christ on earth. In the 16th century, St. Teresa of Avila put it this way, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. There's something about music. In every age of human existence and in every culture, people have made music. It's the most abstract of art forms. Once a musical note is sounded, it is gone forever. But somehow, it has a lingering power over the human spirit. Music is more than a delivery vehicle for the words of a song. The notes and rhythms the pitches and melodies, even the silences and rests built into the music express emotion and meaning. Put the two together, words and music, and the whole is greater than either by itself. Here's a truth that we preachers sometimes find hard to accept. The hymns we sing have more power than sermons to influence the theology and spirituality of a congregation. Few persons will remember a sermon for more than a few days after it is preached, but hymns stick in our heads and hearts all the way to the ends of our lives. I remember many years ago being on a choir trip in England. We were in the crossing of Durham Cathedral one of the oldest buildings in England. 
as the choir sang Bird's Mass for Four Voices, I had the experience of reaching back through the veil of time to the earliest days of the church. I felt I was one with all the followers of Jesus who had ever lived and who would come after me, and that Jesus was there too. At least for me, only music has the power to do that. And that brings me back to the mission Jesus had entrusted to the church. I really think it's important for the choir and the congregation to consider that the choir this week is not leaving for a vacation, but for a mission trip to France. Surely it will have its moments of amusement and levity. All choir trips do. <laughs> but fundamentally, the choir will be sharing the message of the gospel in music. There is someone in France right now whose life is burdened down with care, who wonders whether there is any hope left in the church and for the world. The music may change their whole outlook. You see, in the body of Christ, the choir is one manifestation of the voice of Christ. This is the spiritual gift that has been given to members of the choir, and it is their duty and joy to use that gift. And you, the rest of the body, have made it possible. The session, by seeing the value of the trip and by authorizing it, and you, the members, by purchasing and eating literally tons of Indian River fruit and buying choir CDs. Can you think of it as your mission too? As we all go into the mission field in our own ways, it is very easy to become discouraged. The world is in a terrible mess. Maybe there was a time when we believed that through human effort we could approximate the kingdom of God. Maybe it was at the end of World War II when so many of those who gave their lives in the fight against tyranny had won the victory, but before the beginning of the Cold War. Maybe then we thought things would be better. Maybe it was later with the breakup of the Soviet Union. Maybe it was the election of a black president in the United States. But each time we think we are almost there, sin and evil always seem to rise to the occasion. Presbyterians, who for all their faults have always taken sin and evil very seriously, should not be surprised. It is here we need to remember the other part of what the two men dressed in white told the disciples. Jesus is coming back. He will return as quickly as he departed, materializing in the blink of an eye. We don't know when that will be, but with the early Christians, we hope it will be soon. A common expression in the early church was Maranatha, which means our Lord is coming. This world is deeply in need of Jesus right now, 
When Jesus does return, it will not be to destroy the world, as some have suggested, but rather to bring heaven to earth. Finally, the earth that we have longed for, that we have always known was possible, though out of reach, will have arrived. This hope is expressed powerfully in the book of Revelation, from which the words of the choir's next anthem are drawn. If Jesus does not come back during our lifetimes, then we will all be going to him. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if we are absent from the body, then we will be at home with the Lord. On that farther shore, we will hear the harps eternal and will raise our voices in the great hallelujah. Praise the Lord.